0: Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer Podcast. Today, my guest is Drew Sample, who is the owner and operator of Capital City Greens. Um, Capital City Greens is an urban farm in Columbus that, in pre pandemic, was serving 40 restaurants in the Columbus, Ohio metro area. Drew built his business from the ground up with traditional word of mouth advertising. Welcome to the podcast, Drew.
1: Hey, Michael, thanks for having me on, man. This is long overdue. I, I was going to try to interview you years ago on my podcast, and then I stopped being a podcaster and really had to figure out how to be a farmer.
0: <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's, uh, it's one of those things where a lot of times you're thinking does podcasting go with farming and obviously farmers are standing out in the field a lot. So they want to listen to a podcast. Um, But it's the time constraints. It's just, uh, and that's why obviously we try to record so many of our interviews in the winter time, just because trying to get farmers in the recording studio in the summer um, are just very, very hard. So. um, Absolutely. And I even had
1: to reschedule on you before. So thanks for still having me on just because it was,
0: Oh, and things uh, have just
1: been really unpredictable th- this past year. So,
0: that is true. Yeah, actually, I interviewed someone this morning at. I think we started at six thirty or six o'clock our time, and uh, it was four thirty his time because he was in Arizona. So, second interview of the day. But and again, it's interesting because he has. A, a, you're a very, you're a micro farm selling microgreens in a city. He's farming two hundred thousand acres of beef in Arizona, so that's the cool thing about this podcast too, is we get to interview such a wide variety of farmers and, uh, and actually he would, he's very careful to refer to himself as a rancher. So,
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> rant, that's once you get out West, people like to be called ranchers. It's a weird thing I noticed.
0: Yeah. All right. So give us a little bit of an overview. What started your farming journey?
1: Um, so honestly, man, what kind of started it for me was, I was working a retail sales job and just really wasn't, wasn't happy. I was one of those dudes that would be in a mall and I'd stop you and try to get you to talk to me about your cell phone. And then I'd try to sell you something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, years of doing like, uh, uh, I would say sociopathic behavior over and over again and and being a good person, like it, it just wears on kind of like, yeah, your soul in a way. And so one of the things I was looking to do was, um, I was looking for a business to get out of like the field of sales. Uh And so one of the things I really liked was grow food, not lawns on uh it was like some Facebook group. This is back Uh in like 2011. So I just look at that and I'd be like, yeah, that'd be so cool. And I mean, why don't people grow food? I mean, being like, uh, you know, of Appalachian descent, like something my grandfather would always say to my mom was, you know, why are you planting that if you can't eat it? And Mm -hmm. so like, I'd always help in his garden, in my mom's garden. So that was kind of, that was another thing too, was just, you know, it's kind of in, you know, my roots to, to grow food because, you know, a lot of people, (laughs) A lot of people just grew up poor and so you had to grow your own food it wasn't this cool thing you used to do and um so just going through like just my journey in entrepreneurship like i, I put urban farming on the the back burner and it was always something i'd wanted to do and i i started my podcast instead and then just through kind of my journey as a podcast for entrepreneurship i i'd circled back to urban farming a good friend mm-hmm. of mine who was one of my first interviews my buddy, uh, Joel Cameron Harris, like he had, he was still really interested and he had a community garden and, and we had talked about stuff. And then, you know, I, he had sent me a message that said like, Hey, like I'd been thinking about it I mean, he'd sent me a message saying like, Hey, I'm, I'm really going to get serious about it this year. So I'd already been, you know, selling, um, I was still in sales this time. I would, I'd, I'd become a desk jockey versus a kiosk salesperson. And I was just sitting behind my desk and, you know, getting fat and making make a good money, but like just really not happy having to be somewhere from, you know, nine to six, 40 hours a week. And uh, so I, I was looking for, you know, still for something to fall back on, you know, in my experience in sales, I'd never worked for a company where they, you know, where I knew executives were sitting in a room saying, hey, how can we pay our people more money? Like, mm-hmm. you just don't see that if you're in sales in corporate America. And, and just, I really knew, like, they could pay somebody else to do my job, pay them a fraction of what they were paying me, and probably make enough money so that it at the, at the end of the day, like, they didn't, they, they could cut down their expenses. And it was this, this constant struggle of, like, a company that was constantly threatening to trying to sell. I was working at Time Warner Cable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One merger had already failed, and then another merger which was the one that was went through yeah. was on the horizon, and um, or buyout. I guess I'm, I'm not really sure what what the corporate lingo is. So, Joel had said, "Hey man, uh, I'm gonna be really serious this year. I could really use your help with farmers' markets." And I was like, uh-huh. "Well, you know, I, I have good kiosk sales experience. I've i I know how to sell." So then I I went with him, and we we had our first season, and I worked for free, and I'd help him harvest in the morning, and then. We would get everything prepped to sell to to people at the farmers market and then that first season you know we we weren't as committed like he would go on vacation and we we both had other gigs so it was just kind of like a test run but but i learned a ton and there was already articles about us and like local papers and stuff and it was like okay this isn't you know if you can if you can sell stuff the biggest thing i was running into was production so then you know 2016 came around and I'm gonna do this as like my my part time business on the side to really kind of learn what I'm doing and and because I knew that you know eventually I was I probably wasn't gonna make it through the merger, and I knew I could generate revenue, um so you know I had money so I I I started interviewing in the process of like 2015, pretty much farmers that everybody said were you know the top farmers so Curtis Stone, J M, um. I interviewed just a bunch of different people, even that weren't necessarily making money, but that were just growing food
0: mm-hmm.
1: and just really tried to just align myself with that kind of idea. So, um, you know, Permaculture Voices had happened and I went there and, and Scott Hebert and I were talking about, we were in Curtis Stone's course together. So we talked about being accountability partners. So like there's a
0: mm-hmm.
1: whole podcast of like my first year growing on my own land and you know, how much I failed and how I, I didn't really know how to plan for crops, but I knew I could sell. Yeah, so I could always lean on selling. And I think like, for me in farming, I've always had a lot of the opposite problems that a lot of people that get into it is like a lot of people get into it. And they love to grow food, and they just want to put their hands in dirt. And it's kind of like, you know, the E myth revisited. Um, but I've always kind of had the opposite problem. Like I I I don't really like to, to go and plant things all the time. Or I I don't like to do things like, and I, and I kind of like, I I wasn't as consistent. Like I really enjoyed, you know, going into restaurants and getting to know restaurants or getting to know the staff, learning everybody's Mm names. It's just kind of like my skill set that I traditionally fell back on. Like, it's not that I'm not good at growing things. It just wasn't something I was super interested in. Um, So after that first season um, we, you know, we, we, I, I end up getting laid off and then I got a nice severance and everything. And then I, I decided to um, move in and reach out to a gentleman I met at Permaculture Voices, uh, Rich Fratzel. So he was in Connecticut. He was doing urban kind of permaculture. He had this little food forest and he, you know, his situation was changing. He needed a place to go. And I needed somebody that could help me so I could focus on sales and, 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 and really uh, building the business aspect of it. Um, So it's been quite the journey, man, because even, you know, as a salesperson, you know, you don't understand accounting, bookkeeping, a lot of stuff. So there's, there's different problems. So, but, you know, now, you know, I'm sitting in it, you know, I've, I've had this position as owning my farm for the last, you know, going on five years. And, um, this is the longest job I've ever had. So it's kind of like, you know, taking a look back at everything and, you know, I survived the pandemic and I'm still, I still have customers. So it's, it's, um, you know, it's, it's kind of weird to think like, you know, I I've looked back at my podcast and all these people I've interviewed and so many people aren't farming anymore and everything else like that. So it's, it's been, um, quite the interesting journey, man. I can keep talking, Michael, but I figure I'd let you talk and ask me some questions.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. And I think I like that you brought up the aspect of the E-myth and the aspect that you tried working with somebody else for a year to kind of get your feet wet. Because those are things that so many farmers, if they would A, work with someone else for a year and try things out and B, read the E-myth and understand how business works, there'd be so much further ahead. And then, I mean, the same thing here is we build out this farm there's certain things that I know I do not like about farming. Like I hate washing bins. Um, I hate, not hate planting lettuce. I dislike the monotonous tasks on a farm. Because again, my brain travels at 100 miles an hour and I constantly want to keep trying things new and playing with new things. So um, the aspect of, you know, the sales calls, the calling people, as you said, I love that aspect of interacting, creating new marketing products, creating new things on the farm. That's where I am. And so it's it's good that I know that and it's good that you know what you were good at because then what it allows you to do is when you go higher, find someone that loves the other things and then compliments you as a business. This.
1: Yeah, abs- absolutely, man. And I think, um, you know, that was that that's something that um now even revisiting it, like I think the idea too of having an employee is something that's really tough for people. Like they don't they they look to hire themselves. Um, you know, actually a mutual friend of ours is actually like somebody that is still farming, um, Jordan Cooper. And I went and saw his farm in uh, what is that, Sugar Sugarloaf Mountain, and talked Mm -hmm. to him. And he was he just finished his first year on his own, and he was doing well and was looking to expand. And I think shortly after I met him, he he paid you to to do the washing station and everything and help him get his spot cleaned up. And um, you know, I I'd I'd go see him like once a year because until COVID hit, and it was just we were always kind of on the same page and like you know. You, you want to find like talking to him about finding an employee was kind of like something that really helped me out because um, at first, you know, I was looking to hire myself, which is just you're just going to get in arguments like it's not there's yes. going to be two people pulling for something versus somebody that, you know, now I'm looking at it differently. Like I'm, I'm, I'm looking to bring somebody in that I can kind of teach and mentor. And I think like looking at it from the aspect of, you know, this is uh, this is my responsibility to my community is to provide uh-huh. jobs and food or a job and food to just pr- how can my company serve, it, you know, its community. And I think that's the, that's the key aspect to fit it to like, think about is, you know, okay, how, do, how do I, how is this going to serve um, other people? Um, and so that's been the the thing of like, and and that's also too where you have time to sit back, but I, you know, I still harvest um, cause I, I enjoy harvesting. Like uh-huh. I enjoy everything that, like, pretty much the home stretch of what you need to do before somebody hands you money. And, and I, I like that being a sales guy, you're a sales guy too. I mean, I, I get that. Like just the fact of how organized you are, man, I've, I've been super impressed in just the whole process of even being a guest on this show.
0: Oh, you there think we're organized? Actually, well, <laughs> you should yeah. see my bookshelf. <laughs>
1: Well, but Um, I mean, I think too. Like, I I look at, you know, what you're doing there and it's like, man, I could really step my game up in this way.
0: Well, I I think you're right because a lot of people look at, look at what we do here and like, my gosh, how do you manage all that? And and in one aspect, it's a little bit of happy chaos all the time. But I think you're right that the only way we can stay organized is we have put in systems and processes and um, procedures to make sure that literally after I... Uh, finish talking to you, literally. So what's going to happen is you're going to get off the podcast. i gonna say goodbye, and then I'll probably kick you out of the room. And the reason why I kick you out of the room is because then I'm going to record the 90 second uh, pre roll for the previous podcast. And then I don't hear about the podcast until K- Kirsten says, "Okay, here's the quote from this 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 show. Um, do you like this?" And I say, mm, "That doesn't quite fit," or "Oh yeah, thank- that's a good point that you pulled out." and then I don't, then that's the only thing. And then it's, then it's published and I don't even touch it again. So yeah, we do have, we have processes and we've got to, because of just the, the number of products we have out, the number of places we have our, um, our different pots we have, we're, we're, we're kind of in, which Absolutely. I don't think is good. I, I think one of the jo- goals of this whole year is to get me out of this business so I can actually farm because i much prefer to farm. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean it's a constant. It's it's a constant um, evolution too.
1: Definitely, man. No, I I definitely think so, and I think that's been like kind of the magical part of COVID nineteen and farming and COVID nineteen, like because it's it's been interesting. Um, so you know, building the business over the four years, like honestly, I was I was going for what was like what is the easy what is the path of least resistance like what what requires the least amount of work to to get the most amount of money and you know so the first year season i was mainly just growing lettuce and and i because that was curtis stone's course i'd gotten restaurant customers the year before so that wasn't too big of a deal um but the, the the biggest thing was you know it was just a slow process. Like I, I, I know cold calling is, is tough. Like I've hit the streets, uh-huh. uh, but you never pick up. It's so hard to pick up customers cause there's so many people without actually having a relationship. So honestly, the, the first time in, I I'd gotten like my main restaurant client, it was kind of doing my own style. And it was this was like something like, you know, if people listen to this and they want to hear like, you know, my first year, you'll hear, me and Scott Hebert butting heads because I had a completely different style and he thought I should be doing something this way. And I wanted to talk about my failures and he only wanted to talk about his successes. And so, you know, when you, when you, when you're open about how you fail or you open about different things about what you need, nothing against Scott either. Like I I love Scott. So, but you know, when you look at um, what I'd done, man, I, I was honestly man I was I was dating this this is I'm kind of all over the place sometimes Michael but I'm I'm just trying to like think about what I could help other farmers with like I I was seeing this girl man who was a bartender and she was at a bar right next to this nice restaurant that she was serving and like the the biggest thing that helped me was reading uh, Anthony or uh, yeah, Anthony Bourdain's book and then I was just like okay like I'm not too like, I'm, I'm different than I think, you know, being an urban farmer and being like what I like to refer to myself as like a hood Billy, like, you know, okay. coming up, like my family, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, because, you know, as Dwight Yoakam calls it, the hillbilly highway, you know, reading, and write route 23. And there's a, there's a lot of other people like that, like culturally that are similar to me. So it's like people like, it's like this kind of blue collar working class industry here in Columbus, Ohio, like, and it, you know, this is before COVID, but Columbus is like one of the biggest test areas for restaurants. Mm -hmm. So I kind of knew once I got in, I could, I could just, if I did my part, right, I would get referred to people constantly. So I I saw this guy at a bar and I just talked to him. He, He was wearing like, you know, kitchen clothes. And he told me he was the kitchen supervisor. And then him and I, we had, You know, I bought him drinks. We talked about food. We talked about, you know, just just I talked about farming with him, which most people in the kitchen think is really cool. They want to know where the food comes from. And so then I bought him drinks and um, he got me a meeting with uh, my first chef and sous chef. And then from there, they just wanted microgreens. And I was doing lettuce and everything. And I realized it was really hard to compete with the hydroponic lettuce thing. Cause I thought I had to sell, like, I'm, I'm probably gonna go back and actually probably redo lettuce now, Michael. Mm-hmm. But, you know, back then it was, you know, I had to figure out what was gonna pay the bills. Um, so I, I grew some microgreens. and it wasn't necessarily consistent. And then, you know, fast forward to the next season. I, I sent them an email and they said they were still interested. And one thing that I, and I actually remember watching a video that you did And it was like back in 2016, you said something about, you know, how to keep in touch with your customers during the off season. And I was like, you know, micro, the nice thing about microgreens is you never have to have an off season. Mm -hmm. Like you always are selling to these customers. You're always talking to these chefs. So it's not, you know, you take a few months off and then you, you kind of have to rebuild relationships or see if things are still what they are. Like I could stay plugged in and know what was going on. So I was like you know, this is consistent year round money. And I just, you know, the farmer's markets, my first season, man, that was a hustle. Like I, Mm. I I wasn't in any of the big main, nice farmers markets. I was driving across town. I, I didn't have anything set up correctly. Like I had my, my walk-in cooler was 20 minutes away from my original farm site. So anytime I harvested, I immediately go and drive somewhere and temporarily throw stuff in my refrigerator. But it was like I had to do so much BS just to make the system work and get to a point to where, okay, we got this here. Now let's build this system. Let's build this system. And so it's it's been like this this wild journey. And I think you know your first couple of years, it's your first year is really making stuff work and figuring out what you need to do the next year so it's not so stressful. Mm-hmm. And 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 then the you know as I just went from being able to be year round, taking care of, you know, one customer, then then they really liked me. So they referred me to another guy at another nice restaurant. Then he really liked me and he referred to me at, to like one of the nicest restaurants in Columbus. And that chef really liked me too. So then I had like three restaurants just in my resume to where if I, if it was something like a cold thing, it's like, well, I'm already in these restaurants. Mm. So then people could just, um, could just get in. So if people want to sell to restaurants and the world comes back to normal, I would look at what's the closest kind of industry style bar near that restaurant and chill there during the time kitchens close. Uh And then you'll see people coming straight to the bars because that's what the service industry like to do. So That was my strategy. So hopefully that made sense, man. And I wasn't talking too much in circles there.
0: No, no, no. That's interesting. Because like one right here, there's like the biggest um, uh, restaurant in Dayton, which we're trying to get into with our mushrooms. And I've had a hard time penetrating the veil as it were, um, you know, trying to get in there because they're just uh, pretty, pretty tight lipped about that. But I think that might be a really good place to kind of start is, you know, hit those bars around there and uh, see if you can
1: talk to some of the uh, the servers, as it were, or the, the kitchen help, that kind of stuff. Just get in there even, to yeah. talk to anybody, man. Because I think like, if they like you, you just need a warm lead. You need to create warm leads for yourself. So I think it's like, um, you know, man, this is an old term, like my first run in entrepreneurship was network marketing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I didn't make any money, but I got this valuable education about business. And I I learned the right books to read. And so something that like, when people are talking about, like w- w- you have your warm market and your cold market. So cold market is just cold calling, going to people you don't know. And then you have to win them over and sell them on yourself. And then you have to tell them about your product too. The biggest thing is selling yourself. For a lot of farmers, it's difficult for them to do because man, I, w- one of the things that I, I struggle with with a lot of my farmer friends is because I've been this go-between is like, I get along with both farmers and restaurant people but i realize that a lot of farmers and restaurant people don't always understand each other because the restaurant people typically you know man if you text them before 11 a.m depending on the restaurant they're at or their situation they could be really pissed off so it's like typically anything before 11 a.m is just not a good idea versus like a farmer it's like oh i'm up at 5 a.m i'm in my field I'm doing this. And so it's like, by the time I'm harvesting, it's like, I got a good harvest at probably 9am. So I'm going to hit them up with what I have to see what people want. So it's, you know, building those relationships, man, you really want to look at farmers about or with chefs about, you know, if if the best time is two to four, that's because, you know, lunch is done. And or maybe if they don't serve lunch, it's that so there's a lot of like, you, you have to be a lot really empathetic to kitchen staff and what their schedules are and realize that after they're off work, there's a good chance that they're going to go to the bar and they're going to have some drinks and do whatever it is they need to do to wind down because working in a kitchen is a really intense environment. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of winding down that needs to be done afterward for a lot of those people that work in those, not everybody. So that's, that's kind of like the mindset people need to understand. So having a drink with somebody or, finding a way to relate to them in that way. So so you talked
0: about going from one restaurant to the next, to the next, what was kind of the, what were you offering different? Cause I mean, like uh, Columbus isn't that far from, let's say the chef's garden, which produces, you know, incredibly high level microgreens was your price, the, the advantage or what was your advantage when you, they help you get in the door?
1: That's a great question. So my advantage was I was charging way too little for my products, <laughs> Because okay. another problem is, I feel like in farming, is when you get started, you're charging way too much for certain things and you're charging way too little for other things. Absolutely. So it, for me, it was I, I was going off Curtis Stone's priceless for the lot, for the most part, from like his course. And then I, I didn't really know my local market. And so mm-hmm. I think knowing your local market is good. So there was one local microgreens grower who was already growing and I, and I, and I, you know, so shout out to Swainway urban farm. Who's been Joseph Swain's been farming for like 12 years. He's, he does mushrooms and microgreens. So I, I was really cool with Swain because Swain could help. I knew Swain could help me out a lot. So we had this kind of like no compete thing that I voluntarily put out there because I didn't ever want to feel like I was his competition. Mm. And cause I, I, to this day, he helps me out and we still talk and like, He's he's bailed me out of a lot of situations because I'm not as established. So my cash flow might be is good. We're both trying to buy soil, so he'll front me something just for like a few days or something, so I don't have to come up with upfront money to get something, and then I can, you know. So there's just different advantages of working with you know a, a more seasoned farmer. Um, so one thing was his I knew what his price was, and I didn't want to undercut him but I wasn't confident enough in what I did. So I did end up kind of undercutting him for a little bit. So man, when I first hit the market with microgreens, I was selling like 16 bucks a pound and it wasn't, it was stupid and it it didn't, it didn't really make sense. And I'd make more money at the farmer's markets. And so like it, that was the first thing. Then the other thing was, is like, I know how to go into a, a business and act appropriately. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The, the nice thing and, and that's the biggest thing man i don't think the price matters because i actually had chefs tell me to raise my prices a lot of chefs wouldn't even get microgreens if it wasn't mine so it helped that I out an outstanding product but the biggest thing was that the, the these chefs like me like these people are my friends like we go out outside and i'll meet them for drinks i'll, I'll do whatever and and this doesn't happen as much now like most of the service industry they're just kind of broke, man, just because the, the mm-hmm. service industry is so broken right now, but once things fire back up, they like to go out they like going out to they like being in the industry, which is why they work there so um but yeah, so that was the first thing was i I was way under i undercut everybody and then I knew how to act so i and also you know I would get people' stuff as fresh as I could, so as soon as like as soon as I harvest something like I didn't really want to go to the walk in cooler that was 20 minutes away. So I temporarily put stuff in my fridge and then it was, okay, well, I just harvested this. So they would get stuff fresh. I mean, same day harvest. Um, And, and I also, if, if somebody needs something, like when I'm establishing myself as a business, like I'm dropping everything to go get these customers, this stuff immediately. So not only am I beating everybody on price, but if they order something, they know they can get it within like 30 minutes. So it's in, living in an urban environment too, gives me that edge. Like if I was living 20 minutes outside the city, I probably would still do that my first year, but I, you, you got to figure out a way to get out of that as soon as possible. Like one thing that was something that, you know, I'd always have hear Curtis say is, you know, if I had to do it all over again, I would only have set delivery dates from the start. But I, I, the only issue I see with that is like, if you're a new guy on the block, You know, you have to take advantage of everything, and a lot of that is making a lot of personal sacrifices with your time. But you know, now you know it's five years later. I typically will have you know um, my like kind of intern slash helper run deliveries for me, and then I'll come around and I'll talk and I'll I'll collect payments if I need to, or just talk about what's going on with it. And then it's not I'm just coming in and. delivering something trying to catch up and get money and just trying to do too many things at once. So I think it's like, you know, now that I am slowing down, I am changing my approach, but I think, you know, when you're first going, man, like you need to, you need to look for every edge that you can get over large providers. Cause local farmers aren't really your competition in restaurants. It's like, you know, the premier produce ones or the chef's gardens of the area. So chef's garden, like the other thing that they did was, the first year they put out like all their prices. So it was like, okay, well, let's see if I could grow that. And I know I could make money based on the cost of seed and everything. And I could charge half the price. And I even bet that my product's going to be superior, but other things that they have, there's no way I could grow or I have zero interest. So, you know, one thing as to why their prices are so high is because they always have it. And I don't, I don't want to run a business like that. I'd rather build a relationship and, Get enough, like get like three chefs to commit to something, and then I can always grow it.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Um, so, talk to us a little bit about the range of crops that you're growing there on the farm.
1: So, in for year round for microgreens, the biggest ones that I have right now are micro cilantro, like a, a a radish blend. It's like a radish mix between like purple leafed and purple stemmed. Pea shoots, pea tendrils. I grow about four different kinds of micro mustard just because that's my favorite. Like I like the spicy stuff. And then I'm also doing arugula, kale, and broccoli. And then I'm working in like amaranth and some micro basil, which micro basil seems to be more of a summertime crop. Um, so, but the main ones are just, you know, the brassicas um, and then the, the pea and then micro cilantro. So those are those have kind of been my bread and butter over the years. I just added kale and broccoli um, just because now I am selling more to consumers and they consumers are really, you know, direct to consumer. They're more into like, they know kale and broccoli. It's, you know, there's the marketing, the the marketing behind kale and broccoli has been really successful about how good it can be for you. But, you know, once people kind of realize when they actually look at what you get from eating vegetables, especially microgreens, you know, it all comes and it's like, oh, it's all superfood. You know what I mean? Like, it's just eat real food.
0: Gotcha. But, um,
1: but you still have to cater to the masses. You know what I mean? Like, I, you know, I try to live in not what I want things to be, but what is.
0: Now, talk to me about the, um, the, the, the growing setup. Were you under lights or were you in a greenhouse?
1: So that's a good question. Sorry. I, um, yeah, I definitely want to get into that. So micro cilantro, I have to keep under lights year round. Um, So I am still kind of a hippie purist in the sense that like, I I want, you know, even though they're microgreens, which aren't, you know, they're not really sustainable. It's, it's kind of not, you're never going to find microgreens in nature. You know what I mean? Like you kind of can, if you just went to one little plant and cut it when it's a little spread, like a little shoot. Um, so, you know, I grow everything in soil and then if I can grow it outside, I will. So in the, in the summertime, I have this, this greenhouse that I got that, I got it off Amazon like five years, six years ago almost, man. And, and it, honestly, it's a piece of junk for most people. I would never recommend buying it um, unless you're in an urban environment. I think the fact that I get enough wind block that it, it never has been destroyed. I mean, it's one it's one bad hailstorm away from like being ruined, but it's been getting the job done. I've definitely gotten my money back from it. So I, I tried putting a lot of, a lot of plants in there early on, like the first season, I try to grow everything in there, and then over the years, um, Rich and I just kind of figured out what what likes to grow where. So during the summertime, like the the mustards, the radish, the any any brassicas love being in the greenhouse. Um, certain ones prefer indoors under lights, and we we experimented with that a whole bunch this growing season. Um, and then uh, like so, mainly the radish and mustard are okay outside year round. The broccoli, kale, and arugula—it all depends on the time of the season. Arugula looks awesome in the spring and fall before it gets too cold. Um, there's not enough light to do microgreens in Ohio. Um, there's not enough sunlight, in my opinion, to be able to to still pump them week in, week out. You know, once you get on a schedule, it is a little factory. It is a little machine. So, like, you know, restaurants are time. You can t- restaurants are timed in when you harvest and you have and you're and you're basing your planting around what the restaurants are doing for me personally um and then the the pea really like it underneath my maple tree in the front yard so i don't have any grass my whole lawn is wood chips so the the pea they really like being on top of the wood trips wood chips anybody that's grown pea microgreens know how thick the the soil gets like the the, the root um the root structure gets underneath the soil and like matter like nine days it's actually super incredible i think if you know if, if stuff really hits the fan pea peach seeds will also grow anywhere they're nitrogen fixers like we found them growing in like crevices that, that accidentally fell into like holes in concrete or a, a bag of sand and pea just will like to grow anywhere but it, it's really happiest in the front yard with uh overhead uh in the shade with some overhead watering and then uh, micro cilantro is year round underneath the lights in my grow room. Um, same with basil. Basil likes mm-hmm. to be indoors. Basil's a really funny plant to work with anyway, because even when you harvest it, it, it likes to be at 55 degrees. Um, yes. It's a lot of hassle. I would, man, I would really recommend people, you know, when you get started, just grow some easy stuff. Brassicas are pretty forgiving, um, especially radish. The peas really forgiving cilantro and basil and other other crops they get a little bit more tricky like there's you know we've been really successful with cilantro like we'll average about four to five ounces a tray when it's good sometimes six um but out of no reason we've been trying to figure out we've been hitting rough patches in the summertime and thankfully i was talking to another grower and he grows his cilantro in a completely different way and the end product looks completely different than mine so that's, that's more of an advanced thing. Um, but I would, you know, if you're, if you were looking to get started, I would, I would just keep it simple. Um, even maybe, I mean, something Javin Bernakovich did when he briefly did, it was all they did was grow pea shoots. And I know Chris Thoreau has talked about that. I don't think it's a bad idea. I like variety though, because I want to eat this stuff too. Um, so that's, that's been it. I mean, I, I think, you know, I've, I've tried different things. We, we were doing beets for a while and some chard and you know, and that, that could all come back. I mean, it's, it's, it's all dependent on if, if there's demand there and what it is, but if, if I do switch to mainly just consumers, I'd I'd probably end micro cilantro and amaranth and all that fancy crap that restaurants like just because, you know, the average consumer really doesn't care.
0: Mm, gotcha. So talk to us a little bit about with the cilantro. Are you using split seed or just
1: full seed? Yeah, we're using split seed. So, um, it, I've never done anything but split seed. Um, the first person that I knew that was growing micro cilantro was uh, John Dowie. And him and I have talked quite a bit, a lot a bit about it. But he has a different method of getting it to work. I mean, we don't, I don't soak the seed or anything. Yeah. So a lot of people like to soak the seed and do all this other stuff. We've, we honestly, we typically will just cover the seed um, with a little bit, of, with like a light thing of soil, and that works. But
0: yeah, overhead Covered. overhead watering the yeah.
1: first, but man, it's it's it's. I, I have a love hate relationship with cilantro, to be honest.
0: Hey, Thriving Farmers. Have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, wanna tell you, you don't wanna miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing, so go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well, talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at growing farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. Yeah, we just find, you know, cover it, uh, put it in the germ chamber, pull it out after X number of hours, and then you're good to go. So um, yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about, you know, the overarching aspects around the farm. So what happened when, when COVID hit? Let's talk about that.
1: Yeah, that was a horrifying moment, man. I'm not, I was not ready for that at all. I never thought the day that I never thought that selling like that the restaurants would ever close. I remember mm. I was when it was still in grumblings of it. I remember going to restaurants and saying to people, like, hey, this could potentially affect us because um, people might get scared and they're not going to want to go out. And people were like, man, people just need to wash their hands. You know, people just need to. there's nasty people like a lot of people are nasty i was like no i agree people don't wash their hands enough and that was kind of the extent of the conversation and then um things had just started to slow down um once it got closer and my plan was well i'm just going to pick up more restaurants i've Mm. i was at capacity at the time like i i couldn't i hadn't figured out a way to expand my current setup so i was looking for a second house potentially growing because the price of commercial real estate was so so high to rent back then um, and so, yeah, then, you know, Mike DeWine is given his little press conference and he says it's, it's carry out only. And so many restaurants were caught off guard. I was caught off guard. So I just immediately stopped planting. I had just harvested actually. So I had this cooler filled with microgreens. Um, so my, my, one of my best friends, uh, works at a, a, a grocery store in Toledo um, called the house of meats and it's like it's it's like a, it's almost 90 years old and he was just getting crushed like he was mm. like he was setting record days like sales and so him and i were talking and he's like well why don't you come up here and try to sell microgreens here so i'd never you know i i had packaging still for the farmers markets but i had never sold in grocery stores so, yeah, I, I just went up there. I, I packaged everything I had. I went up there. I had to, I had this label maker, this little printer that I knew Curtis Stone was using. I bought it um, with the intention of selling at grocery stores when I first started. But because, um, you know, Mike, uh, uh, who's your uh, God? He's both our friend. He's in you, you helped him with his lettuce course. Uh, oh, Ray Tyler. Yeah. Ray Tyler was making a killing selling to... To grocery stores.
0: Yep. Yeah, and he's almost completely out of that, I, I believe now. But, I mean, the thing about Ray, which is very really interesting, is Ray's in Tennessee. And very rural Tennessee, so he's had to just you know kind of morph his marketing over the last four or five years as different things have come and gone. Um, so you know he was in chefs huge when he started. Chefs yeah. is now like literally two percent of his business. He used to be into grocery stores doing great. Yeah, he's still in some grocery stores, but I mean that's really reduced as well. Now his big thing is the online you know his Shopify store. He's crushing it with his online Shopify store and crushing it at farmers markets again.
1: Yeah, that, that's interesting because when I, the last time I talked to Ray, he really wanted to get out of farmers markets and I was yeah. like that too. I was just farmers markets and restaurants. It was mainly just the farmers markets I liked because I, it was like, I don't, I didn't make a bunch of money doing it, but I like going there for networking. I like the bartering aspect. And I just think like the essence of what farmers markets are, are so important to us as Americans, Mm. And, um, and just like, and I don't mean like the U S government, I mean, like as Americans, like who Americans are and what we really represent. And, um, so, you know, I, I, I wasn't going to do, you know, I, I when COVID hit, like I, I wasn't going to do, I was going to do farmer's markets if, if, if it was certain standards and then it all went to like everyone preventing people from socializing and everything. It was like, I don't want to participate in that because of, to me, it it didn't represent it, but I didn't have any consumer market. Like, what was interesting was, you know, I saw my friends that were already selling to straight to consumers, and their sales just exploded. And mine went to zero. And I was like, gosh, I was not prepared for this. So I went up there, man. And I spent, you know, eight hours a day in this little grocery store in the east side of Toledo, which is not a place that would be interested in grass fed beef or microgreens or any like nutrient dense foods that like a lot of us and like your listeners are familiar with. And I just was relying on my salesmanship, man. So I was, I was doing that and then kind of learning like the beef business. And I was just, and, and then um, I'd got on Facebook and I'd started selling to vegans. Like uh-huh. one thing was vegans at the time. It was like, okay, they're really um, vegans are, are very loyal. I mean, if, if they actually mm. cook and yeah. a lot of vegans don't cook, so I don't want to speak for them. A lot of people don't cook. Like anybody support anybody who supports farmers typically has a good relationship with their kitchen. And so I, 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 I was getting by with that and then eventually like the PUA unemployment hit and I went to the bank and I, I got my, I qualified for the paycheck protection. I had, shout out to my bank manager who really helped me with just, basically do that. Like I knew how to fill out paperwork. I had an established business. So that got me through. And then from that time it, it was, you know, restaurants slowly started to pick up, but I've been in this state of, okay, I need to do things differently. Like, you know, just like you said, Ray Tyler, like it was pretty much, I went through like a quick evolution of what Ray had to do, like just out of just of his location. And so for me, it was like, okay, I'm selling straight to consumers, but I'm mainly selling to vegans how do I pick up people that aren't vegans? Um, And I was, you know, I was working in this meat market and I'm looking like, man, the price of beef is just going up. I was like, man, I should really look into grass-fed beef. So I hit up um, a farmer's market, grass-fed beef farmer that I knew out of Mansfield. And I was like, hey, have you been looking at the price of beef? And he was like, no, I haven't. And um, so I, I worked something out with him. Like I immediately bought like a whole cow off of him. And then him and I were talking and then we were setting something up because I remember the, the cost of strip steak went up like $3 a pound overnight, or it was uh, skirt steak. And so I was like, man, I need something else to sell with my microgreens straight to consumers. Like, cause a lot of people just don't know what to do with microgreens yet. So I'm going to need to kind of show them. So, and also for me as well was, um, I wanted to secure my own good, good quality meat. Like I knew that all the large, uh, meat, like pretty much butcher shops were, were, they were getting closed down the ones that are like the foreign owned, like Smithfield. And then a lot of, a lot of the beef ones are owned by Argentina, like companies out of Argentina. And so all the little butcher shops had booked up. So I'd, I'd already, uh, went to an auction and I bought a cow and I was going to finish them on the cat pasture. And knowing that like, you know, people were hurting so much in this, this, and like that side of things that like, and I'm sure your, are ran- I'm not sure if your rancher buddy that you talked to earlier was in the same boat, but it was, you know, the, it, people couldn't get a place to move cows to, because all the butcher shops were booked up. So I bought the cow and I leaned into my sales experience again, Michael, and I called about 40 butcher shops. And then through networking, I got two slaughter spots in July. And then I just bought this cow and this, uh, this steer in May And I, I managed to get, um, I'm sorry, it was in August. So I managed to get like two USDA slots out of Hillsdale County meets in Michigan, just through networking. Um, How many hours
0: away was that?
1: Oh man. So the first day I, (laughs) so this is, it's, it's about three hours from Columbus, but my first day when that date finally came, I actually didn't have a trailer and neither does uh, Zach, the fart, the partner, the, farmer I was partnered with. So he was borrowing another farmer's trailer. Then that farmer sold his trailer um, with his farm. So we were looking at the cost of renting one, but my, my homesteader buddy had a trailer, but like he only needs it two days of the year. And it just so happened that was the day he was taking his chickens to Baltic. So I had to drive all the way up to Baltic to get the trailer. Like I left at like 5.30 in the morning, <laughs> drove down to Mansfield, had to actually manage something like i had to manage some crazy stuff and then we we drove all the way up to hillsdale county meets and we had to get back because zach was going to lead his youth group thing so we got back man and i put on i drove 600 miles my first day for my first to take my cows into the slaughterhouse
0: wow
1: so i i don't know man like i'm it's i don't want to go back to corporate america so I think for like something Luke Gross always says to me like what he said to me is like you never get into farming for the same reasons you decide to stay. Mm. And and I think that's something to think about like I'm not going back to you know corporate America like I can't. So you just have to evolve. And I think and I think Ray Ray Tyler's the same way and I think like you know I should really reach out to him and pick his brain but you know I'm I'm working You know, I don't want to force the the website thing, but I I am working on getting my website going and getting online sales going, but I don't necessarily have a clear vision of what I want that to look like. So that's kind of it. But I, you know, while I was in Toledo though, I picked up two grocery stores that, you know, they're 102 years old. I don't sell to any grocery stores in Columbus. We don't really have small chains and the ones that we do that would buy for me, they're already buying from Swain. Um, So, you know, man, it's been, uh, it's been an interesting journey, but you know, I took last year, I think I, I took a hit. I, I lost like 50% of my revenue from the year before, but I'm still selling to like 25 restaurants. And I just picked up an extra, like another country club and another restaurant. And there's going to be, you know, it's going to come back slowly, but surely. Um, So, but in the meantime, you know, I can take a hard look at myself. I can take a hard look at my relationship with my business and figure out okay what do i need to outsource what do i need to do to turn my farm into a business how can i expand so that's that was kind of where the beef thing came from and you know i think getting in where you fit in is a big deal as well like i i have certain business skills to where you know i could pay rent to another farmer and really rent his land and his you know his cattlemanship but you know i, I have family in Kentucky who have like 3000 acres that they run cattle on and they were selling them at auction just the in-between before they'd go to a CAFO but that's not really going on there so now it's like okay now I can just buy from my family on my family's land in Kentucky and it can be you know the cattle are just there because they use the cattle to manage the land and so if they're not too old and everything it's like okay now I can go into this but it's also like you know what is the best beef for farming for grass-fed beef and all that, or the best type of cow. And I didn't know any of that stuff, man. I just pulled the trigger and it was like, well, I know how to sell. And here we are. And I think that's, that's like the the biggest difference. I think, you know, if people are looking to get into farming, you know, go get a crappy sales job or read like some old school sales books. Cause I think people really underestimate like the importance of learning to sell.
0: Yeah, yeah, selling is so key. It's it's so much of a, and you know it's, it goes back to the advice that you know Paul and Sandy Arnold, who are my mentors, gave me. Was uh, Paul said you know first you're a salesman, then you're a business owner, and finally you're a farmer. And that aspect of you know yes you need to be a farmer, but you need to be a much better salesperson and a business owner um, for that. So that's really important. So let's talk about let's say you were to go back to the beginning of your farming journey, what things would you change?
1: Hmm. I would, you know, I, I would just have more confidence. That's what I would change. But it's like, it's, if I had more confidence at the start, I would have done things differently. But at the same time, like, I wouldn't have my confidence now if I wouldn't have dealt with the things I needed to deal with. Um, but I would have been more, um, I would have, I would have, hmm, at the very beginning, I would have definitely looked more into bookkeeping um because i i cost myself a lot of money tax wise cuz i didn't know how to keep books i didn't track my miles i didn't do any of the important things that you need to do um so i definitely would have i would have been a better bookkeeper and i would have been less intimidated by it um and i would have just focused on microgreens from the start but you know, you, you just got to get in where you fit in. It's, it's so tough. It's so, you know, everything is, you know, hindsight's always 2020, but it's always like, well, if this wouldn't have happened, would I really be who I am today? So it's, that's, that's, it's a, it's a tricky question to think about, man. Um, I'm just trying to think what else I would have had my cooler situation figured out and already at my house before I really tried to start farming that, that I think cold storage is so key um i think it's but it is kind of expensive so if you can get around it at the start you do but i mean having a good cold storage is the key and i think too i would have i would have done a better job of writing things down like i don't write things down so that that would have been a better thing too and like really actually logging my whole journey through whether it be through video and youtube videos or something else um to just actually show and like document i would have documented better i think that's the best way to say because i think out of everything i'm glad i was i failed at so many things early on so i could know what i needed to be better at um but i would have documented better like i think that's the biggest thing i would have learned how to video myself beforehand and be comfortable with that Because people, there were so many people that have come through after me that have built like these huge audiences. I probably introduced a lot of people to farming and I kind of did the opposite. Like I went from being a normal podcaster to just completely unplugging and diving right into my business and focusing on that.
0: Mm Uh hmm. Um, so let's, what does your business look like now? Cause I know you've talked about being in the you know, 25 different restaurants now, but are you still doing retail sales? You're still selling the grocery stores and what does that look like? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So right now I'm selling to two grocery stores. Um, we pretty much, we don't have any standing orders. I mean, I don't have really standing orders with anybody. Um, and the, the biggest reason why is cause I'm too nice. Um, I, I don't want, you know, my customers to be uh i don't want them to feel like they ever have to buy something from me because usually i can find somebody else to buy it that's always been my attitude um so right now i'm selling it's it's so tricky man so there's no set there's no set buying pattern yet so before this all started i i could manage like i knew when to text people and i would just you know text people and say hey do you need a refill and they typically just say yes and i would come to them but now it's you know it all depends on like COVID numbers and everything. So sometimes man, it'll be like two weeks and then everybody orders. Um, the grocery stores are pre- still pretty consistent. Um, so that's, that's about every other week. One it's, I think they're selling more than the other. Um, and that's uh, so Churchill's and Toledo. So they're buying it. Like um, the, the mommy location is buying it more consistently. And, um, and then direct to consumer it's still a thing i'm still figuring that out so that's that's mainly with the beef like i'm not uh, i'm not selling any beef to really restaurants it's mainly just for the consumers um, so that's like an easy add-on for the microgreens so when people are buying beef i'm like well do you want to get these microgreens too so it's kind of just a hodgepodge the most i mean most of the money is still coming from restaurants there's a little bit of money coming from the grocery stores with the microgreens a little bit of money coming in from you know, beef sales and everything else. Um, So right now it's, I'm at about 25 restaurants. I need to get out more and pick up sales, but it's, it's, uh, it's just really challenging right now. Like getting, getting the warm leads and also staying focused on that. That's been, that's been a real challenge to get back into phase one, I guess I should say. Mm,
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, What advice would you give to brand new farmers trying to figure out how to get started?
1: Um, my advice would be start out part-time and fail a whole bunch, figure out what you don't like to do and figure out what you like to do and then figure out a way to make that work in the future for you. Like figure out to, so you can focus on the things you like to do with the aspect of farming, but really focusing on sales. I mean, if you're, if you want to farm and have a business, I mean, I would recommend people read, you know, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, How to, How to Win Friends with, uh, or How to, uh, what is that, that, uh,
0: How to Win Friends and Influence People? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Success with People too by Cabot Robert. I think that's a better book. It's a little bit older of a sales book. Uh, The Magic of Thinking Big, like just some really good old school, like personal growth and self-development books. But, you know, learn to sell, focus on sales, Uh, profit first. That was a good book for me. Having a system for your money, I think is important. Paying yourself, learning how to pay yourself is super important because nobody likes working for free. I don't care when people say it's a labor of love. You have to figure out a way to compensate yourself. Otherwise, it goes away kind of like my podcast did once I actually worked for myself. Um, So I, I, you know, so I would say figure out how you can pay yourself with your farm. Uh, figure out how to get systems, learn to sell, um, and don't grow too many things, man. I think, you know, you want to grow everything. It is cool. I mean, it, you know, one thing is just to learn to grow. If this is something you're dabbling in, grow the stuff you want to eat, then go to a farmer's market. There's a uh, um, man, the Kerns, the Kearns urban farm, I think, I think she's in your Facebook group. She was at my one um, farmer's market, you know, shout okay. out. What's that?
0: I, yeah, no, that's that's good. Yeah. yep. Yeah, mm-hmm.
1: I can't think of I can't think of her name. But she, when she was getting started, she was like, I'm an urban farmer. And it, she had her whole family involved. And I always like really liked her. And I hope she's still farming. But you know, I felt like she was she was doing it part time. She was in her local farmers market. And she was working on telling a good story. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have a good story about your farm for people to buy in or, you know, stories sell, you know, people don't People are never going to care. I mean, like, look, I, I tell people I'm um, soil grown, chemical free. Most people don't even know what that means, but it sounds good. But mainly it's like, look, I'm going to grow food as, as much as I can to be like food. So that's kind of my pitch. But really, people want to know, oh, you're in Linden. Oh, you're an actual. Wow, you're in Linden. And it's like, yeah, it's not it's not that bad. And it's, you know, because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a hood farmer. Like I'm in the I'm in the hood. And, and so that's kind of my story and people think it's funny. Like I'll say I'm a hood farmer and, but I always had a good story. Like when people are talking to me at the farmer's market, I have a good story. Um, you know, another thing is, you know, when you're at a farmer's market, don't, you know, don't get in long conversations. Um, just try to talk about the most important things, but always be selling. You always gotta, you always gotta sell. Um, so that's the biggest thing I would say is really learn to sell. Uh, figure out bookkeeping. I think profit first is a is a great method by Mike Um, and 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 really just grow what you want to eat your first year, and then figure out from there like what's easy, and then figure out what's selling the most out of what you like to eat, and then start to 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 kind of focus in on those you know the main cash cash flow crops, I guess. Figure out what moves for you and everything else like that.
0: Got it. Well,
1: Drew, where can people find out more about you and the work you do? So I have a website that's functional, um, but it's not great. It's, uh, cap Um, you can also follow me on Instagram. It's I think it's at cap greens. Um, Michael is very prepared. I gave him my Instagram stuff. So you will have it in the show notes to so check out Michael's show notes. You can hear my old podcasts if they want. It's just sample uh, like most farmers I'm pretty opinionated so so if you don't like my all my opinions my apologies uh, but that's it man I, I really appreciate you having me on man I I enjoyed talking to you I hope you had a good time too
0: yeah no this was a fun uh, conversation to hear you know kind of how you got started and just like what your I think philosophy about farming and kind of how that played out over the last couple of years because it's fascinating to hear how different people approach farming and then execute on that. So it's great to hear kind of your setup on that. So again, thank you so much for coming on, Drew. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. Hey, Thriving Farmers. Next week on the podcast, I have Emily Newman, who is a consultant with the Rodale Institute, and she helps farmers transition to organic farming farming. So fascinating conversation. We dive in everything from soil health to how to transition to working with farmers, um, all sorts of things on more of the large scale. So we talk more large scale agriculture and what that looks like. So join me next week as I interview Emily Newman. So there you have it. Another episode in the book's